Section 6 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 10. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 10. Henry Conscience by William Sharp. Henry Conscience, 1812-1883, by William Sharp. Henry Conscience, not Hendrick Conscience, as commonly written, for though the great romancist was a Fleming by maternal descent and by native sympathy, he was the son of a naturalized Frenchman, and was christened Henry, who is popularly known as Walter Scott of Flanders, is with the exception of Georges Econ, the one Belgian author who has succeeded in gaining the ear of Europe. There is not one of the leading languages, and few of the less important, into which one or more of his books have not been translated. Indeed, his works are to be found complete, or all but complete, in French, German, Norwegian, and English. One story, for example, Rikitiki Tak, has not only been rendered into every European tongue, but has been paraphrased to such an extent that variants of it occur in each instance as an indigenous folk tale in every land, from Great Britain in the West to India and even to China in the East. Today, to our changed tastes, the tales of conscience may seem somewhat insipid, that is, in translation, for the style of the original is characterized by singular verb and charm, but there must be a radical appeal in writings which have reached the home-circle readers of Belgium and Holland, of Germany and of Scandinavia, of France and England and America. Born in Antwerp in 1812, of a French father and a Flemish mother, the childhood of the novelist-to-be was passed during the French domination in the Netherlands. While a youth, he watched with eager intelligence the growing pressure of the Dutch yoke upon Flanders, the restless vicissitudes and memorable events which culminated in the Revolution of 1830 and the separation of Belgium from the neighboring country. This uprising of the Flemish people was followed by a rebirth of Flemish literature, of which the informing spirit was Henry Conscience. Titherto, the young writers of his day modeled themselves upon the then all-potent romantic school of literature in France. Moreover, without exception, they wrote, in French, in accordance with the all-but-universal prejudice that Flemish was merely a patois used only by the vulgar people. Although Conscience's first literary efforts, martial songs and poems, were written in French, he exclaimed in 1830, when he was only a youth of eighteen, and with prophetic insight, I confess I find in the real Flemish something indescribably romantic, mysterious, profound, energetic, even savage. If I ever gain the power to write, I shall throw myself head over ears into Flemish literature. The little Henry was a cripple till his seventh year, and the child's mother was wont to amuse him by the narration of wonderful tales of fairies and angels. Later he passed his time in reading forgotten books that were stowed away in the garret, or in exercising his creative faculties in inventing local stories for his admiring companions. At his mother's death, his father removed to a lonely spot a mile away from the old Antwerp wall, and here was first aroused in the boy the warm love of nature that is so strongly marked in all his writings. 
After acting as assistant master for two years at Delling College, he, in 1830, joined the Belgian Patriots as a volunteer. During the six years of his service in the country, he gained an insight not only into the beauties of nature, but into the lives and feelings of the Flemish peasantry, into their manners and customs. He grew intimate with the gentle nobility of their character, which underlies the stern melancholy of their outward disposition. Conscience's first important work was written in 1836, after the cessation of the war, to gain him admission to the Olive-Tack, Olive Branch, a literary club of young enthusiasts. Hit van der Jaar, 1566, was written in Flemish and was published in Ghent in 1837. This historical romance, full of color and rich and dramatic incident, gave the death blow to the existing didactic prose and poetry, and was the foundation stone on which arose the new Flemish school of literature. Pierre Conscience, however, saw his son's partisanship in the Flemish literary movement with such displeasure that eventually the young man had to leave home altogether. His friend Wappers, the eminent painter, procured him a small appointment in the Department of Political Archives, which, however, he lost, owing to a violent political speech. A funeral oration at the tomb of a director of the Antwerp Academy was the indirect means of his gaining a post in the offices of the Academy, where he remained till 1855. In 1857, he was appointed to the local administration of Courtrai, and in 1868, the Belgian government conferred on him the title of Conservateur de Musées Royales de Peinture et de Sculpture, a guardianship held by him until his death in 1883. Conscience's literary career divides itself into two periods and shows him as historical romancist and as a writer of novels and short tales. The success of Het van der Jaar inspired him to a second venture, and in 1858 he published his De Lou van Vlaanderen, The Lion of Flanders, an undertaking which, despite its subsequent fame, brought the author six francs for net profit. He writes of himself that the enthusiasm of my youth and the labors of my manhood were rooted in my love for my country. To raise Flanders was to him a holy aim. France threatened Flemish freedom, therefore he wrote his two finest historical novels, those which depict the uprising of the Flemings against French despotism, The Lion of Flanders and The Peasant's War. From the literary point of view, the second book is superior to its predecessor. The plot is not so closely linked to history, and though there is less regard to historical accuracy, the story gains more in dramatic unity. As a historical novelist, conscience does not belong to the school of realism and archaeology. In a word, he pertains to the school of Walter Scott, not to that of Gustave Flaubert. He writes of himself, in Holland my works have met with the same favour from Catholics and Lutherans alike. Yet his Catholic predilections have in many instances impaired his historical accuracy, and even deprived his brilliant, vivid history of Belgium of scientific value. To his second period belong his stories, in which he directs his powers to the task of social regeneration, and of painting the life of his own day as he saw it around him. In such novels as De Girigard, The Miser, De Arme Edelman, The Poor Nobleman, he resolved 
to apply the glowing steel to the cankered wounds of which society is dying. He describes the qualities which equipped him for his task when he says, I am one whom God endowed at least with moral energy and with a vast instinct of affection. It is, however, in the tales of Flemish peasant life, Rikitikitak, how men become painters, what a mother can suffer, the happiness of being rich, etc., that the author's exquisite style shows itself at its finest. There is nothing in the conception of the stories to show great inventive talent, but the execution, the way in which these simple things are recounted, is of the highest artistic excellence. In the matter of style, his dual nationality proved an advantage, for to the homely vigor of the Teuton, he added the gracefulness, the sobriety, the sense of measure and proportion, which are peculiar to the best French prose. Georges Econ, his celebrated fellow countryman, says of him, In simplicity of form, coupled with the intensity of the idea expressed, lies the eloquence of this Flemish author's tales. Thus is explained the popularity of that delicate casket to the furthest ends of the earth, to the simplest as well as to the most cultivated circles. The work of conscience is like a sociable country house, a place where men can regain the simplicity which they had lost through cheating and deception. No better summing up of the writings of Henry Conscience can be given than that penned by himself in his biographical notes. I write my books to be read by the people. I have always made the intellectual development and education of the ignorant my aim. I have sketched the Flemish peasant as he appeared to me. I drew him calm, peaceable, religious, patriotic, attached to his traditions, and opposed somewhat vehemently to all innovations. In short, as he appeared to me at that period of my life in 1830, when, hungry and sick, I enjoyed hospitality and the tenderest care amongst them. I have never inspired my heroes with the poetic glamour for which I have been reproached. It is they who inspired me. And then a man may dwell by preference on the defective side and the coarseness of the labourer, may sketch him as the slave of drunkenness and animal passion. I shall not deny the picturesqueness of this work. But between that and the admission of my delusion, there is a wide margin. My neighbor's heroes are not necessarily mine, nor do I see them in the same light. People are constantly discussing whether he who paints things in their darkest colors or he who sees all in a materialistic light, or he who presents everything in its happiest form, whether he who takes a subjective or an objective point of view, is right. All I know is, and it is my settled conviction, that a conscientious writer is never wrong. And I believe myself to be conscientious. This is a frank, manly, and honest pronouncement and will surely be admitted as such even by those who may not care either for the matter or manner, the method or the literary principles of Henry Conscience. Perhaps the best commentary is that after a European success ranking only after that of Scott, Balzac, Dumas, Hugo, and Hans Andersen, Henry Conscience is still, thirteen years after his death at an advanced age, a name of European repute is still, in his own country, held in highest honor and affection. William Sharp
Henry Conscience, The Horseshoe, from Ricky Ticky Tack. In the village of West Mall, some two or three miles from Antwerp, on the road toward Turnhout, stood a little smithy in which four men, the master and his three journeymen, were busy at various work in the way of their trade, and at the same time were conversing, as much, that is, as the noise of hammers and files would let them, of Napoleon and his mighty deeds of war. One of the journeymen, who had lost two fingers of his left hand, was just beginning a story of the Italian wars, when two horsemen pulled up before the door, and one of them called out, Hola, my men! My horse wants shoeing! The journeymen looked curiously at the strangers, who, by this time, had dismounted. They were evidently both military men. One of them had a great scar right across his face, and wore a red riband in his buttonhole. The other, though dressed like a gentleman, seemed in some sort his subordinate. He held the horse by the bridle and asked, "'Which shoe, Colonel?' "'The near forefoot, Lieutenant,' was the reply. One of the journeymen took the horse and led it into the shed, and meanwhile the Colonel entered the smithy, looked about him, and took up first one, then another, of the tools, as if looking out for an old acquaintance. At last he seemed to have found what he wanted. In one hand he held a heavy pair of tongs, in the other a hammer, both of which he surveyed with so peculiar a smile that the journeymen stood round, gaping and staring in no little amaze. Meanwhile the iron was in the fire, the bellows panted away, and a garland of sparks spurted from the glowing coals. The journeymen stood by the anvil, hammers in hand, till the master took the iron from the fire. Then began the work of forging. The colonel evidently took a lively interest in what was going on, his features lighted up as they might have done at the finest music, but when the shoe was taken from the anvil, as ready for putting on, he eyed it a moment, not a little disdainfully, took the tongs which held it from the master smith's hand, and put it back into the fire. "'That'll never do,' said he. "'The shoe's too clumsy by half, master. Now, my lads, look alive, blow away!' And while one of the journeymen, with an air of great respect, obeyed his directions, he threw off his coat and bared his sinewy arms. Soon the iron was at a white heat. He turned it twice or thrice in the fire with all the air of an experienced hand, laid it on the anvil, and then called to the journeyman in a cheerful tone, "'Now, my men, look out! I'll give the time, and we'll turn out a shoe fit for the emperor's nags. So now, tension! Ricky-ticky-tack! Ricky-ticky-too! The iron's warm!' Up with your arm! Now strike! One, two! Ricky-ticky-two! Ricky-ticky-tack! Ricky-ticky-two! Strike while it's hot! And tarry not! Again! One, two! Ricky-ticky-two! There! Look at the shoe now! The journeyman eyed the light, neat piece of work agape, and as it were, struck dumb. The master, meanwhile, seemed to be turning some thought in his head which he every now and then shook, as though quite unable to come to a satisfactory conclusion. He drew near the stranger, who by this time had resumed his coat, but however closely he scanned him, he seemed unable to recognize him. The horse was soon shod, and now stood before the smithy, ready for its master to mount, who took leave of the party with a friendly shake of the hand to each, laying also a couple of gold pieces on the anvil. "'One for the master, one for the men.' Drink my health together, and good-bye to you. 
With these words, he threw himself into the saddle and rode off with his companion. Well, said the master, I never in my life knew but one man who could knock off a shoe like that, so light and neat, and so handily, and I must be greatly mistaken if the colonel isn't just Carl von Milgem himself. He, you know, but to be sure you don't know, he that the folks used always to call Rikki-Tikki-Tack. The Patient Waiter from Rikki-Tikki-Tack She took her way with the cow toward the brook, which was edged about with a scanty growth of grass. Slowly she went, step by step, leading the creature after her by a cord. At last she reached the line where the heath passed into a range of low-lying, boggy pastures, and the alder and juniper bushes formed a closer thicket. There she left the footpath. A solitary beech stood there, sown probably by a bird, for as far as the eye could see it descried no similar foliage. Magdalene sank down at the foot of the tree. Deeply she bowed her head. Motionless she gazed on space. The cord fell from her hand, and her accustomed reverie came over her. Now in the free open air, under the beautiful deep blue heaven, the sore load of trouble which weighed upon her heart fell from it. Her lips did not move, no sigh escaped from them, but a quiet stream of tears trickled into her lap. Long, very long, she sat there without changing her position, but by degrees her tears fell more slowly, till at last she lifted her head, and with a calmer air murmured her old favorite tune. Ricky-ticky-tack, ricky-ticky-too, the iron is warm, up with your arm, now strike, one, two, ricky-ticky-too. What could this strange jingle mean? It would have been useless to ask Magdalen, for she herself knew not how it was that of themselves, almost without will or consciousness of hers, the meaningless words came tripping over her lips. A faint recollection she had of someone having often sung them to her, but that was long, long ago. They spoke but indistinctly. Still, they had ever more and more fixed themselves in her train of associations, had become ever more and more the accompaniment both of her joys and of her sorrows. After she had repeated the rhyme a few times, and each time less sadly, she seemed quite to forget her melancholy and the causes of it. She stood up, her face radiant with contentment, briskly led the cow to a place where there was better pasture, and ran towards a sandy hillock which rose a little above the general surface of the heath. She had often visited this spot. Steadying herself with her hands upon her knees, she fixed her eyes on a bluish point far away upon the extremest verge of the horizon. A town it was, probably, or a large village. With unwearied eyes, she gazed upon the road, doubtless in the unconscious hope that by it he who should release her from her bondage would one day approach that way. THE LOST GLOVE "'This is the celebrated bear pit of Bern,' said the guide. "'Pass here when you choose. You'll always find people of all ages who are amusing themselves, throwing bread and fruit to these ferocious beasts.' Here is a good place. See the tricks of these bears, and how they lift up their arms like real beggars. While Max Raplings was entirely absorbed in contemplating the amusing antics of the bears, Herman, glancing around, 
noticed a lady wrapped in a red shawl who had dropped a yellow glove and who would probably have lost it as she continued walking on. He picked up the glove, ran after the lady, and said to her in French, You have lost something, madame. The lady turned. Herman seemed transfixed. This lady was no other than the pale maiden of the Arbogasse, whom he had not recognized at first, owing to her wearing a colored shawl. She made a step toward him, took her glove with a smile of thanks, and said in a voice whose sweetness was great, "'I thank you infinitely, sir.' But at once appeared beside her the old gentleman with the crabbed face, who fixed upon the young man a look both piercing and interrogative. Just at this moment Max turned toward his friend and cried out, "'Here, Herman, come quick! There are some bears fighting furiously!' This cry produced upon the young girl and old gentleman an extraordinary effect. It seemed to strike them with terror and affright. They turned away and walked off rapidly, as if in the young doctor they had recognized a dreaded enemy. Max had observed this inopportune meeting. He left the Swiss, who was still amusing himself by looking into the bear pit, ran towards his friend, looked at his face attentively, and cried with astonishment, "'You are pale! What did she say to you? Did her tyrant insult you? You do not answer! Alas, there is an end of all our pleasure for today. I would give the poor five francs were you never more to meet the pale maiden and her dragon. Hush, hush, Max. I have heard her voice. It is marvelously sweet and fascinating. It still resounds in my ear like a cry of distress. A cry of distress? Did she complain to you? What did she say? Only, I thank you infinitely, sir. And you call that a cry of distress? You are surely losing your wits. Yes, but her voice was so plaintive, her smile. Oh, she smiled upon you, did she? That devil. Things began to look serious. Her smile is so sweet, sad, and plaintive. There, now, you're beginning to talk in verse. This does not seem to me the fitting spot beside a bear pit. Come, behave yourself, Herman. Here is our host coming. For the love of heaven, do not mention the pale maiden before him. For he might think you have lost your wits. The Iron Tomb It would be difficult to describe to you the strange life I led at Bodegem. I wandered daily along the walks of the uninhabited country houses, in the woods and shady groves, my mind enveloped as it were in a dream, which like a thick cloud held me aloof from the outer world. It was useless to call to my assistance all my energy and will to dissipate the fog that thus covered my intellect. It was trouble lost. I could only see Rose in her pitiful look. I could only feel the worm of sorrow that gnawed at my heart, and only heard the terrible words, Do you know the news? Rose is going to be married. That followed me everywhere, without giving me one moment's peace. The violence of passion, the bitterness of despair, had left me entirely. I hated no one, accused no one. Not even my cruel fate, not even the future husband, my rival. An intense sorrow, a dreamy resignation, a species of quiet sympathy with my anguish took the place of all violent emotion in my heart. Convinced that I was never destined to experience real happiness in this world, I recalled one by one all the recollections of my past life, and with these reminiscences, 
I created for myself an imaginary world wherein my soul could find a source of peace and consolation. In walking through the garden, I would stop on the bridge and gaze into the water. Then, returning to less sad thoughts, I would contemplate for hours together the lawn that stretched itself before me. I saw in imagination a delicate little girl, pretty as an angel. By her side was a little boy who could not talk, but his eyes at the least word or smile from the little girl would lighten with admiration, gratitude, and pride. I followed those happy children. I trembled with heartfelt emotion when I perceived upon the little girl's face a smile of friendship for the poor boy. I shared in their games as they traced out a bed of flowers in the grass. I ran behind them as they chased the butterflies. I listened to their childish chatterings and each beating of their little hearts, and I recognized with cruel satisfaction that even then a fatal power dominated over these innocent creatures, and had already sown in their hearts a seed of a future love. I spoke to the trees, the flowers, the birds, to revive again the memory of my lost happiness, until nightfall and the weary throbbings of my heart warned me that it was time to return home. On other days I would wander in the woods and try to find out those trees to whom I had confided my sorrows and hopes. I recognized the old places where I had once sat, and I thought I could see, glittering among the grass, the tears I had shed some eight long years ago. Then I used to weep from pure happiness. The sun of hope inundated my heart with its light. Now I had none. My life was closed by the dark wall of the impossible. It was on that account I had no more tears. Tears are both a prayer and an intercession for help and pity. Why should I complain or implore? I, to whom no earthly power could give back to my heart what it desired, whose sorrows by their very nature were to be life-lasting. Again at other times I would sit down on the hedgeside, where the dumb child had worked for weeks carving wooden figures, loved treasures with which he hoped to win a smile. I saw again the spot where the child rolled on the ground, a prey to convulsions of despair, because his tongue refused to utter any intelligible sounds. I saw the white poplar trees, whose bark still bore the mysterious signs with which he tried to make himself understood. The cows that were grazing in the fields, the cracking of the shepherd's whip, the silvery dew arising from the running brook, the splendor of the rising sun, all recalled the memory of my childhood and helped me to forget my mournful sadness recalling to my mind a picture of happiness that had been, but could never, return. Siska Van Rooshmael Not many years ago, you might have seen in one of the streets behind the green churchyard of Antwerp a famous old grocer's shop, which through many generations had descended from father to son, and had always been conspicuous for good wares and low prices. The last proprietor of the shop was James Van Rooshmael, son of Frank, son of Charles, son of Gaspard Van Rooshmael, and had married Siska Pott, a descendant of the famous Peter Pott, whose name is still to be met in the two Peter Pott streets. This wedded pair, trained from early youth to a life of industry, 
and now unremittingly busied with their small trade, had never found time to take part in the progress of modern civilization, or, in other words, to Frenchify themselves. Their dress, made of stout cloth, was plain, and hardly ever changed its cut. They merely distinguished working dress, Sunday dress, and Easter dress. The latter was never taken from the cupboard but on great holidays, and when the Van Ruschmels took the Holy Communion, or were invited by friends as godparents or marriage guests. It was easily to be seen that the simple people of the old Flemish world, in their quaint though valuable dress, looked rather strangely if compared with many a fine beau, who for a few francs had decked himself out in a fine showy dress, and would, in passing, regard the Van Ruschmels with disdain. But they did not mind it, and thought, Every man has his own point to gain, you the shadow, we the substance. They were sufficiently uneducated not to know that gentlefolks do not dine at noon, and they therefore were vulgar enough to sit down to dinner when the clock struck twelve, yea, more. They never forgot to say grace both before and after dinner, but there were other imperfections with which they ought to be charged. For instance, they did not understand a word of French, and had never felt the want of this accomplishment. They were religious, humble, industrious, and above all, peaceable. But the height of their stupidity was that they in their Flemish simplicity considered it better every day to lay by an honest stiver than by lies and fraud to amass such riches in a few years that all the world should exclaim in astonishment, In what hole did the rat find it? In a word, they were Flemish burghers of the old school. A Painter's Progress At the funeral of Baron de Erkt, a humble vehicle followed the procession afar off. Arrived at the burial ground, three persons alighted from the poor conveyance. They turned into a by-lane near the cemetery, and did not show themselves during the ceremony. But when all was over, and the splendid carriages were returning in speed with all the mourners to the town, three persons were seen entering the churchyard with slow steps. It was Frank, his aged grandmother leaning on his arm and supported by his mother on the other side. Nobody saw them. All was still in the cemetery, and the greatest silence prevailed around. Do you mark them all three, their eyes red with tears? their breath choked by the agony of grief, approaching a mound of newly dug-up earth. There rests the man who did good by stealth. Oh, say not that virtue is not rewarded, not honored. The tears of these people weigh thousands in the scales of the heavenly judge. Look, the women are kneeling on the mound. They clasp their hands and bend their heads over the grave. Their lips move. Is theirs a set speech? Are their words studied, measured, written down, in order that they may remember them? Oh, no. They know only one prayer, which the Lord himself has taught them. They say the Lord's Prayer over and over again. Their voices become clearer whilst they pray. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Holy Mary, Mother of the Lord, pray for us miserable sinners, now and in the hour of death. Amen. Their sobs, their tears, 
their sighs tell the rest. Sleep in peace, kind-hearted friend. We plant no flowers on thy grave. They are not everlasting as the memory of thy countless charities. May thy soul receive in the bosom of thy Maker a reward which the world cannot give. And why does not Frank also kneel on the ground? Why? He is absorbed in grief. He feels no life in him. He has forgotten where he is. Look, there he stands like a statue, his head dropping on his breast, his hand pressed to his forehead. How the streaming tears sparkle which burst from his eyes. Unfortunate youth! Who could describe the mortal despair which weighs on thy bursting heart? Awake! Seest thou not that the cold ground will injure the health of thy grandmother? Remove her from the grave, else the evening will perhaps still find her kneeling and weeping here. Take courage. Return to thy home. On the following day, Frank said in a sorrowful tone to his parents, We are unfortunate and poor. I am the cause of your sorrow, I know I am. But let me now put a question to you and answer it candidly. Can we still hold out for three months without earning any money? The question remained long unanswered. The mother went up to the invalid husband, and after a long, serious conversation with him, said, Three months with the utmost stretch, but no longer. Well, then, said Frank, I shall make a last attempt. One picture I will paint still, one only, and if I do not sell it soon, then I shall turn sign-painter. It gave him evident pain to utter this last word. There was a spasm in his throat, yet he soon composed himself and asked once more whether they would let him work for three months without trouble or molestation. This his parents readily promised him. Frank then went to Mr. Wappers and received the last twenty-five francs which his generous patron had left for him. With part of this money he purchased colors, and on the following day he shut himself up in the loft where he used to work and sketched the first outline of the picture which he intended to execute. It was the churchyard of Hemixem, with a newly thrown-up grave, on which two women were kneeling in prayer. Behind them stood a young man, weeping and absorbed in the deepest grief. On the side were the walls of the chapel, and in the background a rich landscape. During two months and a half Frank worked without intermission. He went out to the churchyard in order to draw from nature, and made his mother and grandmother sit to him for models. Never, perhaps, had an artist worked with more enthusiasm, with more love and industry at a picture. His soul was full of his subject, and during all the time he was employed in his work, his head burnt feverishly. Could this picture turn out ill? No. It must necessarily bear the stamp of inspiration. And so it was. Frank got on credit an appropriate frame for the exhibition, but this time another thought struck him. He sent his picture to Germany to the exhibition at Cologne. Will he be more successful there? Yet the picture was gone, and stayed away without any news of it whatever. Poverty, greater than they had ever felt, now broke in upon the longing family. They ate black bread and were as if crushed by the awaking to the dreadful reality. The good old grandmother showed the greatest courage. 
she carried quietly her best habiliments and her few trinkets to the pawnbrokers, and consoled the others. But matters could not thus last long. The clothes of Frank and of the mother must at last also be pawned. Even the prize medals and other honorable decorations went to the baker as pledges for a little bread. They had already run up an account with the butcher and the grocer. The baker would let them have no more. None would trust the wretched artist, as Frank was nicknamed in the neighborhood. The weekly house rent was unpaid during a whole month, and the landlord had even sent the bailiff to exact payment. One afternoon, in the month of September, the destitution of these people reached its height. None of them had tasted a morsel since the preceding evening. The bailiff had just left them with the warning that he would return at six o'clock, and if they did not pay their rent they would be turned into the street. Grandmother held Frank's hand in hers, and sought to console him. The mother shed silent tears. The father, who still wore his arm in a sling, sat at the chimney and stared gloomily into the chamber. All at once he burst into a flood of tears and sobbed aloud. Frank had never seen his father weep. This was the first time in his life. It struck him like a thunderbolt. A shriek of terror burst from him, and he fell on his knees before his father. "'Father!' he cried. "'Father, you weep! You! Oh, be at ease! Tomorrow I shall turn sign-painter. Then I shall at least earn sixpence a day!' The workman raised his son from the floor, and pressed him with his left arm to his heart. "'Frank, my boy,' he said, "'I don't lay blame on you, but we are so wretched.' I weep because I am in despair that I cannot work. We are starving, and craving hunger is gnawing at our hearts. Who will give us to eat before the night falls in? Where shall we go when they turn us out tomorrow? Is it not sufficient to turn my brain, or to make me— Frank pressed him forcibly to his bosom, and cut short his awful speech by a tender embrace. Whilst father and son were thus clasped in each other's arms— the door opened, and a man with a leather bag strapped over his shoulder stretched out his hand with a letter in it. With a sudden start, Frank disengaged himself from the arm of his father and attempted to seize the letter, but the postman drew it back and said dryly, "'A letter from Germany. Two francs.' Two francs! Where is such a treasure secreted in this poor dwelling? Two francs from people who are starving! Who could describe the tortures and sorrows of this family?' The letter contains, perhaps, what may put an end to their distress. Perhaps it would dry up their tears, satisfy their hunger, and protect them from ejectment. And alas, whilst they are staring with beating heart at the letter, and long so ardently to open it, the postman is turning to go off with it, and to rob them of all their hopes. It is as if the ground was burning beneath their feet. They stamp the floor from impatience and tear their hair. Now the mother kneels down before the postman. She raises her hands imploringly. Ha! He weeps. His heart is not of stone. Eh, he hands the letter to Frank. Take it. I am a poor man, too, but I can't stand this any longer. Frank opens the letter slowly with a trembling hand, cautiously undoing each and every fold. But scarcely had he cast his eyes upon the contents when the muscles of his face began to tremble convulsively. He grows deadly pale, 
and a strange scream escapes his breast. He supports himself upon the table, and the letter drops from his hands on the floor. The room rings with lamentations. The grandmother raises her hands to heaven. The mother sinks backward from her chair as if paralyzed. Frank was struggling to speak. It was evident he wanted to say something, but he could not make it pass his trembling lips. At last his speech burst forth. Grandmother! Mother! Father! I am a painter! Five hundred francs for my picture! End of section six. Recording by Skaya Simaru. Mililani, Hawaii. March 2020.